L is for love. And not icky, what is romanticised in our culture, love, but actual, universal and unconditional love. And there might be some thumping in the background because I'm still putting the hay out and there are horses waiting for the hay and it can get a bit noisy when a certain Remus decrees that his food isn't coming quick enough. <coughs> because when you have an unconditioned horse, they're a bit like having a cat. You are actually just slave to that individual. <coughs> oh dear. And I wouldn't want it any other way. So, love, as I used to understand it, was basically a fairly insecure, unhealthy attachment. I don't think I understood what love was. And one of my favourite quotes is, love someone in such a way that they feel free. And I think it's kind of like, that's one that I've taken to heart and that I've... uh, it's one of the, my models, it's one of my framings for life, really, that I don't want anyone who is in my orbit to feel that they have to be a certain way in order to receive my love. Uh, and one of the big lessons for this was recognising that I can love the soul, I can love the person, whether they be human or animal. And that doesn't mean that I have to endorse or condone or enjoy their behaviour. And so separating the person, the being, the wishing to witness someone else in their true expression is love rather than wanting to change someone or even wanting someone's experience to be different is all about our own comfort. Um, so sort of like there's, there's this sense that I can't, I can't really feel love whilst I wish somebody to be a certain way. And so in terms of relationships, getting to the point where I recognise that I can truly love a person who... I am in relationship with and that love doesn't leave if that relationship ends I can still love that person I can still love the time we spent together I can still love the experiences we had I can still love the soul of that person and I don't necessarily need to be spending time in their company maybe spending time in their company isn't the right thing for me but that doesn't mean I don't love them And so our version of love is this sort of, I don't even know what to call it really, this sense that we can only love someone whilst we are in a relationship with them and as soon as we're not in a relationship with them, we basically hate them or forget about them. Or, and, and part of that is the attachment wounds that we, that we have because in order to get out of a relationship sometimes we have to get to the point of the feelings being strong enough of dislike or whatever in order for it to 
in order to be able to grow enough to be able to be strong enough to get out of it. Um, but it's funny how, again, that you know, involves quite a lot of projection. Because ultimately, just because somebody else isn't doing what we would approve of <laughs> doesn't make them any less lovely or lovable and it comes down to this culture of judgment and blame and shame and this the expectation in society I think that someone else will meet all our needs so a lot of you know what we see culturally read culturally listen to (laughs) codependent love songs ahoy um is is about loving someone because they are doing the right thing, inverted commas, or, and meeting our needs. And it's not anyone else's job to meet our needs. And I don't know at what point that became a thing or whether that's always been a thing for humanity and it's always been one of our, one of our tests to sort of try and grow beyond that, that you know, that desire for someone else to meet all our needs and for it to be easy and not take anything out of us. <laughs> uh, and it's something that I'm, you know, we as a, as a couple are working on at the moment because, you know, we're both trying very hard to figure out what's mine, what's not mine and what each of us wants and needs. And therefore, on the back of that, whether we're willing to meet those needs. So I've got a really simple example that happened the other day. So we were out in the yard, sorting out a load of stuff, doing a bit of a spring clean. And if I'd have been doing the job on my own, when I let the horses out in the evening, I would have done the poo picking. Because I prefer to poo pick twice a day. It gets it done, it means it's less, there's less in the morning to do. And because I'm female and I have a multitude of tracks on my brain and a lot of things as a woman, a lot of things shout at us. So, for example, as we're walking through the house, a pile of dirty washing will shout at us. The bin needing emptying will shout at us. The washing up in the sink will shout at us. And we're not aware of it. We're not really conscious of it. But it just is a drain on our, on our life force, really, that doesn't really need to be there. But because we are able to keep hold of many tracks, Alison Armstrong calls it diffuse awareness, where we're able to keep a, a load of different tracks present at the same time, which obviously is necessary with if you're running a household and you've got children and all the rest of it, you need to be able to keep your eyes on a multitude of things. But because of that, it means we don't really get to switch off. And our only way of switching off is to actually get to a stage of zone out, which for some people is in front of the telly, for some people it's reading a book, for some people it's... And it's not something that you're actually going to have to think about. It's just something that is... It's almost its sole purpose, although it'll feel like enjoyment, almost its sole, sole purpose is to distract us from all the tracks that are shouting at us. So because of all those tracks, I would have done the poo picking, because otherwise when I got in, there would have still been a track in the yard going, oh, but you didn't finish. You didn't finish. You didn't finish. And my partner has got very, very good at providing for me. And 
when I ask him to, and I tell him what the provision uh, gives me, he's very, very good at providing. And one of the things that he's had to learn over his evolution is that he's a typical man, he loves providing, and because he loves providing so much, he has done it in a range of places for a range of people, and he will get to the point of burning himself out on it. So he will over-provide and over-provide. And he said to me once that this is the first time he's ever felt appreciated for what he provides. Can you imagine getting to, the, to, you know, to middle age and being providing for everybody your whole life and only just having got to the stage where someone appreciated you for it? It's like not getting paid, isn't it, for your entire life? But there also being an expectation that you would do whatever people want because women expect men to do things for them. So, so he's on a journey of saying no to me, which I love his no. I find his no quite hot, refer back to <laughs> Kink. I, I find his, his no quite hot predominantly because... It triggers something in me that is a little bit of a, my bratty inner child. And also because I recognise what it's, what it's gifting him to be able to say no to me, who he wants to provide for, means that it is actually meaningful to him to not provide that. And so that's you know, the, the sense of the neutral space between his domain and my domain. He gets to choose. I don't have any expectations of him. <laughs> I try <laughs> not to have any expectations of him. <clears throat> and he gets to choose what needs he will provide for me. So I was uh, dealing with a bonfire and he was wheeling the wheelbarrow around. So he was sort of like already in the poo-picking domain and he generally does the poo-picking when he's around. So I just said to him, you know, really... I'd really appreciate it if you do the poo-picking because it would take another track of my mind and then, you know, I'd be able to rest this evening, you know, with, with much less going on on my brain. And he said no. And I went properly into brat. And this is what is great about us is that he now recognises that my brat is just a, an expression of an inner child wound and that he can witness her. And she's not trying to manipulate him She's just having her true expression. And what's great about it is that we're both at the observer state as well. So I went full into, but why? You, you know what you provide for me. It'll take a track of my mind. Oh, my God. Please. And he was like, no. He said, you need to deal with that track yourself. It's like, well, then will you do the bonfire while I do the pooping? No. <laughs> But why? Proper bratty again. And he's like, because I don't want to. I don't need to. I'll be doing the poo picking in the morning anyway. Get over it. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And what is, again, coming back to the kink episode, what is great about it is, is I really get off on letting my brat have her expression. And in the old days... I would have struggled to give her true expression because I would have known that it would have impacted him 
because of him living in a culture that we've lived in, he would have known that there was an expectation and that there would be consequences of that expectation. So as women, we are very good at withholding from a man, whether that's information, whether it's attention, (laughs) whatever it is, we're very good at withholding from a man in order to try and get our needs met. Again, it's not a conscious, malicious intent. It's just one of the ways in which we manipulate them. (laughs) And because they are so different to us, they don't have as easy a way out of it as another woman would do. So what was great about this experience was that I was able to be fully embodied in my brat. I was actually loving my brat. I was definitely not loving his no in that moment. But the fact that I wasn't loving his no gave my brat full expression. And the fact that I know he loves me and he can deal with my brat meant that I could fully embody that wounded inner child who didn't get her own way. And we can, between us, reparent both my wounded inner child and if anything had come up for him, his wounded inner child, if he had felt any sort of obligation or that there would be any sort of consequence. And as it was, we have this well enough embodied in ourselves that he knows there's no consequences. He knows I'm just bratting off because bratting off is one of the ways in which I will process and be able to be cleaner in the future. And so this idea that, you know, he wouldn't choose me to be in brat and I wouldn't choose in that moment his no, (coughs) but we love each other and we love those aspects of each other. I love his no as a generic thing because I love that he's actually learning to put that in and put himself first. He's learning to figure out what he needs. And I disliked it intently that he chose to do it in that moment where I really, really wanted something to happen. And it was something so minor. You know, people listening may think, oh, what a tiny thing, why are you bothering about it? Why, why did that trigger your brat? It's like, because in some ways... The minor it is, the easier it is to fully embody different parts and aspects of ourselves. If it's something really major, it's going to be much more edgy. Um, Whereas if it's something minor that we can both laugh about, we can laugh about me having potentially a bit of an expectation that he was going to be a yes because he's got so good at providing exactly what I need that I've got a bit used to it. Right, so when he is a no, for seemingly no reason, that gives me an opportunity to feel into that in a way that I haven't had to recently, because recently I've been very much in the full appreciation, full approval, full celebration of his no. And I think without that recognition that unconditional love is there no matter what we no matter what our little human body feels in that moment about that individual 
that unconditional love is not affected by their behavior or by our behavior so just like I could love myself unconditionally and I can say why did I need to brat about that why couldn't I have just been a clean okay brilliant yes thank you celebrate the no you know there's no need for me to beat myself up about it there is just the lessons and the growth in reflecting on I wonder why in this moment it felt more edgy it felt like I wasn't being seen as not as much as I usually am because he wasn't willing to meet this ridiculously petty need of mine but the unconditional love is there <clears throat> and the more I come through this menopause experience the more I recognize that men men's sense of love is trust and respect and I can see that on some levels unconditional love is a form of respect because if I can respect that soul in that body and I can cleanly state that doesn't mean I'm going to approve or celebrate every single behaviour but I, I wholeheartedly celebrate this, this being. I see God in this being. I see the universe in this being. I see the other as me. And I wish to be celebrated and appreciated just as much as the other does. When I see that, I can sense into the unconditional love is a form of respect. It's a form of respect for myself and it's a form of respect for the other. And it does take a big lump of trust because... And I guess the trust is in myself to be able to love unconditionally. And so it's a big play in terms of, you know... One of my spiritual traditions is Kundalini Yoga. And one of their big sayings is, if you can't see God in all, you can't see God at all. Now, take the word God out of the equation. If you can't see the universe, something bigger than ourselves, in each of us, even when we're all fatally flawed in numerous different ways, then I will never be able to unconditionally love myself if I can't witness... it in others and be okay with it and so comparing that to the love in inverted commas which is a form of um, kind of a a toxic form of attachment issues whereby the expectation is that I will be okay if you do x y or z Um, And that, you know, that example of me being a bit bratty is a good example of that because, you know, I was literally saying to him, I will be okay if you do the poo picking in this example. And I also recognised that it didn't affect how much I love and appreciate him when he said no. It wasn't my preference. Hell no, it wasn't my preference. (laughs) But it gave me a lot more growth by having that experience than him just saying yes. 
but it doesn't impact our relationship. In fact, it does. It impacts it in a good way because it gives us more to process between the two of us. It gives us a lot more practice in what's mine and what's not mine and where is the neutral space and how can we stop fiddling in each other's domain. You know, one of his challenges is how can he let me have that experience because he will feel accountable for that experience. He's not. He's not accountable for me being female and having multiple tracks in my brain. He's not accountable for me having a bit of a brat because that's just what one of my wounded inner children. And yet he will feel that and he has to deal with that because that is his, his own stuff. Whereas I'm over here dealing with mine. <clears throat> and so it sort of like gives us a gift but there is obviously the in- inevitable challenge in that but it's separating the person from the behaviour and then one of the best pieces of work that I think I've ever done has been naming my parts so naming my brat as brat naming my shame gremlin Gemma and banishing her to Canada my inner critic is called Imogen. And all, what it does is, when we're in the process of uh, becoming the neutral observer within, whenever one of these characters or parts of us shows up in an experience, naming them separates them from me, but not doesn't push them away, except in the case of Gemma, who I do push away to Canada quite regularly it doesn't I'm not trying to get rid of that part of myself I'm just saying okay this part of myself here has become uh, activated by this experience so in this example with the poo picking my brat got activated I was still in the witness so I wasn't so far down the line where I couldn't deal with myself and I wasn't no longer aware of all that was going on, so I could run brat whilst keeping an awareness, whilst recognising and witnessing what impact this was having on the other and remaining in unconditional love for all the parts of myself, those that I'm aware of in that moment and those that I'm not, and all the parts of the other that I'm aware of and that I'm not. And again, that is another version of unconditional love that I am able to love, respect and nurture different aspects of myself, even when I feel that a lot of the time, Gemma is a great example, they're not actually benefiting me. So Gemma, my shame gremlin, for a long time, she ran the show. You know, she kept me in a state of feeling like I was always going to do the wrong thing, I'd always done the wrong thing, I was such a bad person for doing the wrong thing. She really, really led the game. And a lot of the time that happens for a lot of us because we are all, we are all the traumatised child. We've all, we've all been domesticated. So on whatever level that has happened to us, we have all had experiences that our system hasn't been able to process in the moment. And that generally brings up this shame response. And that's been very useful for me to work through and she can get out of, out of hand. So just as I say about everything else, it's the balancing of the polarities. So on one end, I've got me acting completely shamelessly, 
and not in my own best interests. It rarely happens with me. And on the other end of the polarity, I've got being so eaten by the shame of being me that I can't actually function. And so I need to get to somewhere in the middle where the shame gremlin is balanced and ultimately that I can love her because she doesn't get involved unless there is really a need for me to feel shame. <clears throat> and that's still quite an edgy one and I think it's an edgy one for most of us wherever we get on our life process is that there are still moments where I can sense the feeling of shame that isn't necessary. I'm trying to think of a, an easy example. Okay, so I have an easy example <clears throat> from work where I... Someone did something that was clearly... There was clearly a no access and they came in anyway. And I stated no entry a little bit more harshly than I would have chosen to do so if I had been more in the observer state. But I was so shocked by the, <laughs> these people doing this that I was like, I wasn't in the observer. And on re immediate reflection, I went into shame. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, I said that too harshly. But actually that awareness allows me to process it and go, okay, that isn't my preference, that, that wouldn't have been my preferred way of dealing with that situation, and I can have love, unconditional love for myself as the person, and also unconditional love in that moment for that behaviour, because I was a little bit out on the back foot and a little bit out of control, as in I wasn't in the, in the complete observer state. And this is one of the reasons why I'm putting myself in the life experiences that I am at the moment, because the more challenging the life experience, the more difficult it is to stay with the neutral observer and deal with things, snap, 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 in the moment. Because there's the dealing with it, there's the processing of it, there's the how much have I been activated, which part of me has been activated. There's a lot going on. And to keep coming back to that sense of, and I can love myself. And I can love the other, even if there is an, an, an other who has acted in a way that has activated me. That doesn't mean I can't unconditionally love that being. It is only the behaviour, just like the different parts of myself. Sometimes I can be not in right relation to that individual part of myself, but I can unconditionally love myself as a whole. And then I can go in and get to the place of unconditional love with the parts of myself. And one of the biggest places for that with me at the moment is <coughs> the rage monster. So Alison Armstrong talks about, you know, all women have this rage monster and how regularly she gets triggered depends on the individual, but she's there lurking in the background. And I have always been a person who is so introverted and <laughs> tends to not engage with humans that the only time it has ever the rage monster has ever been able to come out has been when I've been alone or with a very safe enough other. And it would generally come out in slamming doors and stuff like that. I don't think I've ever really consciously engaged with <laughs> rage monster. And <clears throat> a week or so ago, my partner was away for a week and I actually, I think because he wasn't around, 
I went into some deep spiral of feels and I actually started to find my rage monster who I've never met before because I haven't been conscious enough of her. And she's called Rachel. (laughs) And I can sense how she can be very powerful when I'm in that balanced place of right relation with her. And yet, because I've never really dived down into the depth of her, and menopause makes this much bigger, like the rage monster is part of menopause, it's part of that transitional hormonal flux thing, like this recognition that I need to meet her, and I need to meet her where she's at in order to fully unconditionally love myself, is edgy because I don't quite know where she could take me. And as I said to a friend at the time, if I let her come out into full expression, okay, I'm safe because I'm on my own, but if I let her come out into full expression, will I ever allow her back into the box again? You know, will I be able to shut her away into the box? And the answer to that is no, because she shouldn't be in a, shut in a box. <laughs> she should be walking alongside me with all the other parts of myself, and she should only come out when it's really necessary to potentially defend myself or whatever it may be. And so it's like figuring out, okay, well, it's a bit edgy because I don't know quite how wild this one might become. And having never met her in her true (laughs) expression, where is she going to go with it? And one of the other pieces of that is that the animals have always been a barometer for me. If I am angry, because I would have tended to hold it in, it's a, it's a woman thing, isn't it? That, you know, we're allowed to be sad, mm, are we? I'm not sure. We're definitely not allowed to be angry. We're definitely not to have, allowed to have big anger. And so it's always been like a hidden part of myself. And the animals have always known. So if I'm ever a little bit edgy, and I could be completely unaware that I have any anger or rage in me, the animals know and they behave differently. And then I'll read them and I'll go, oh shit, what am I doing wrong? I've got no idea what I'm doing wrong, but they're being weird because obviously I'm being weird. And so it's only in the last few years where I have got into this place of recognising all the parts that I'm aware of so far and even starting to have some anger come up, not aimed at any individual animal, but just some anger in me come up because of this whole menopause system, blah, blah. And they've all been in right relation to it because I've been in right relation to it. So I've been like, oh, this is the thing. And then I'll look at the animals and they'll be like, oh, yeah, she's being herself again. It's almost like it's a relief. Whereas in the old days, if the rage came out, like anger came out, or even if I wasn't aware of it, I could walk into the yard 20 years ago and magic would leg it up the field to get away from me. And I'd be like, how do you even know what mood I'm in? Uh, but he did. And it now, so they've, they've all been different barometers. So Remus has always been able to deal with my rage because he's unconditioned and I've, I've never had a no <laughs> with him. Uh, so he's never been bothered about my me. But the others have obviously all been a little bit more edgy depending on where I'm at. And now it doesn't matter what I'm at. They're all just like having their own experience, living their own life. They're not different based on where I am at as long as I am in right relation to <coughs> where I'm at or at least you know working working on my own stuff and so this idea of having unconditional love for the other outside of myself and the other pieces inside myself has been such a journey and a lesson and a gift for being able to be relaxed into who I truly am
And it's not been an easy one, particularly, you know, there are always some people in life where uh, they challenge us and it's hard to see ourselves in them. It's hard to see the other as mirror. And there are also parts of myself where it's hard to have that unconditional love. And so getting to that place has been, you know, an unimaginable gift, really. And there's still, as ever, more to process. So on that note, I'm going to leave this here and I will speak to you soon. Much love. Bye bye.